0: Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks who have used the historical collections held in the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received funding from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is Dr. Megan Elias, Associate Professor and Director of the Program in Gastronomy at Boston University, and we'll be discussing her book project titled Be His Guest, How Conrad Hilton Made Hotels Better Than Homes. Megan, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. Uh, Let's start by painting with broad strokes. Could you tell us what it is you're researching and writing about?
1: Yes, um, so it is a biography of Conrad Hilton, but it is also a history of the hospitality industry in the 20th century. So the um, the interest in the hospitality industry kind of came first. I usually write about food, um, and food business is hospitality. So I um, I began to be interested in um, in hotels and specifically in how people um, in the business kind of conceptualized hotels and what are they and what do you need to know to run one and I thought it would it's such a huge subject that it might make sense to tell the story around an individual and so I thought about you know who are the who are the important names in this business and and finding that you know Conrad Hilton didn't have a biography that was also about hospitality there's one that's kind of about the the Hilton family and their scandals and, and, um, you know, the sort of like mostly focused on, on their existence in Los Angeles. But, but um, the story of the Hilton hotels is really a story of a, you know, a tiny company that grows and grows and grows and becomes international and establishes this whole concept of what American hospitality is. And I hadn't, you know, I had not a clue that I would be thinking about these kinds of things. This really started with a little tiny book I was reading about how to run a lunch counter. Um, Lunch counters were often part of of hotels in the 1920s. And it just, you know, from the lunch counter, then I found there were other books about how to run your hotel. Um, And then, you know, finding this this particular character who did have a global empire, has really made the project uh, uh, much bigger than I than I thought it was going to be, which is fun, right? It's always fun.
0: Oh, that sounds really fascinating. What is the time span we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, so um, essentially late nineteenth century to late twentieth century. Yeah, so he's 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 about nine. He's ninety one when he dies. So he's got he's sort of like most of a century, which is like it's such a blessing for a historian, you know, because <laughs> you are going to think that <laughs> way. Um, and he's born in um, in New Mexico in a tiny town, so he's also part of the history of the you know the um, the settlement by uh, by European Americans of the West. So there's that. Like I'm actually working on this section right now. Um, he 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 embodies in his um, sort of per, in his public persona, he embodies the southwestern kind of cowboy figure and then brings that spirit into his business life and his business persona too. So um, yeah, again, like the project he just, it keeps bringing me into more and more corners of American history, and I have to kind of try to bring them together.
0: Oh, well, how did Hilton get his start in the hospitality business?
1: Ah, so there are a lot of different stories about this. There's this sort of like apocryphal story about how his father ran a mercantile store and they also rented out rooms, and so did you know did Hilton get his taste for hotels in this kind of not quite hotel but sort of um, almost like boarding house situation? And he says no, um, but it, it's true that like by the time he was an adult, he kind of knew a little bit about running hotels, you know, a hotel, um, <laughs> not really a hotel. But he uh, he served in the First World War in the Quartermaster Corps. And that's the division that does all the supplies and moves stuff around. And so for me, I think that's where he began to get the idea of of, of like, what is it like to be in charge of um, supplies in that way? Um, The Quartermaster Corps had a mobile laundry. They had a mobile repair shop. They had a mobile de-lousing station. (laughs) So he's already like in the pest control business (laughs) to some degree. Um, and all of these things are, are also things that you would also see in hotels. But he actually, he bought his first hotel when he was 32 years old. So he's already, you know, well-advanced. Um, he'd been trying out a bunch of other things. He'd been trying banking. Um, he ran his sister's musical act for a while, which I also think kind of contributed because he's traveling, he's staying in hotels. He's already in that kind of inter- entertainment business that hotels also um, are going to involve. Uh, but he bought his first hotel in 1919 in um in um Cisco Texas it was called the Mobley it was a pretty new hotel it wasn't fancy, um and he had the story is he had gone to Mobley to try to buy a bank the bank deal fell through he went to the hotel and found that the hotel was just doing crazy business because they were it was uh, the middle of the oil boom, hmm. so um he he said okay well here's a, here's a here's an interesting business right they're thriving um I'll buy it, um you know as you do. <laughs> Right? you just drop into town and buy a hotel <laughs> so it's, this is not a rags to riches story right as you can as you can tell already um so he bought the first hotel in in 1919 and then kind of quickly sold that one but kept buying more and more and more he built the empire um in texas to begin with um and then um almost got wiped out by the depression that really came back very strong um, and through the Second World War he was very smart about buying hotels mm. uh, that people didn't really want, fixing them up a little bit, you know um, and then and then uh, he just kept buying uh, until um, uh, in, in the post-war period he began to uh, sort of be part of the Marshall plan um, He was he was invited to help, set up um american hotels in europe Hmm. and you know so how does he get that how does he get that in that he's the person that they think can do this right how does and this is part of what i have to answer is how does he create a really convincing hotel chain in the u.s that makes officials in the u.s government think that he's the right person to to um set up american hotels in Mm -hmm. in you know not just in europe but in parts of the world that have been kind of um Disadvantaged by the war, let's say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's well, to bring American dollars into those spaces.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what uh, what was it about his model of um, of hospitality that made him successful and uh, desirable as a partner with the government? Was it um, scale the scale of his enterprise, or uh, the, perhaps the standardization? The, yeah, or-
1: there's there's a a good a good bit of all of that. So. Um, it's a kind of an idea of a, a standardized luxury. Mm-hmm. He's building off of this, the um, Ellsworth Statler's idea, which was of a, a, a level of, um, of cleanliness and convenience. Statler was really just trying to serve the, um, the traveling businessman who um, really didn't need a lot in the way of like culture, but just needed a really clean, reliable place to stay. So he's he's building on that, but adding in the concept of, um, of luxury. So standardized luxury, which is it's a very interesting oxymoron to, to deal with. And part of what I was looking at the Hagley was this, how, do you, how does that manifest in interior design?
0: Right? Mm-hmm. What does
1: that look like, feel like, smell like? Um, so what is the sensory experience of standardized um, elegance? But also, um, he had worked out a, a, a business model that was unique at the time, not so much now, but he, he sold a management system, basically. So your your country pays for the building and um, Hilton sells you the the idea of how to run it and, mm-hmm. the, and trains the staff. And so there'll be a couple of Hilton people working in your hotel, but there'll be a lot of local staff and they will have learned this business. So in, in some way, it's a really neat um, way for a, a country to... To sort of jump into American style um, hospitality,
0: is is that sort of a franchise approach? It's kind of like
1: a franchise, but not exactly, because Hilton still retains. Hard to it's hard. This I got. I have to articulate the difference here. I don't. I can't do it yet.
0: Okay. Sure. Um, Well, uh, what collections at the Hagley Library did you jump into to help you? uncover this story
1: yeah so the big collection there for me um was the was the william paulman collection Mm -hmm. and so he was an interior designer who had been hired by hilton to work on the um rockefeller center hilton which is, is the it's a whole building like built from the ground up it's um interesting looking it doesn't look it didn't look like the other buildings around it at the time so it's a it's a big statement and you put something like that in New York right you're really making a statement that I am here I'm, like, I'm the biggest guy in town he'd also um he bought the the plaza he bought the Waldorf like he bought the you know the signature hotels of New York but then he needed to, to really build um something special to Hilton hmm. and Hilton um the company had a in kind of inside design team but they also often worked with um, designers who are not on their team so architects and interior designers um, and then also decorators who are not exactly from their team so I wanted to to understand how um, how the space is created what are the values that the company is thinking about when they hire someone to create space and what's the interaction with the individual designer how does the how much does the designer get to speak his language or her language and how much is it a Hilton language? Hmm. So I've got this a bit of obsession with the um Roland Marchand book of creating the corporate soul. And so trying to figure out what the Hilton corporate soul is through design elements and then because I'm a food historian, <laughs> through the culinary. Um and so how does William Palman, how much does he contribute to what the the voice of Hilton is and how much does a voice of Hilton sort of become a Paulman voice uh, in this case and there's also some some material about hotels in the Ernest Dichter collection um, which is the market you know the amazing market research collection less than I wish I I really want to go back in time and tell Ernest Dichter to pay more attention to hotels because I need <laughs> to know <laughs> Yeah, but um, I could probably use my time machine for you know solving world peace or something instead
0: Well, what did you find, um, uh, what's the balance between these uh, different impulses uh, for designing uh, these spaces? Uh, Was it primarily um, Hilton driven or did designers have some autonomy in in shaping these spaces? What was the balance there?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. Paulman had a lot of freedom. Hmm. So getting to read his letters to the Hilton people, their letters to him. His letters to other designers who he's working with, so he'll have the vision, and then he'll also work with textile people, lighting people, furniture people. So Paulman had this whole community of designers and makers mm. um, that I would just love to write more about and learn more about. So um, he he was able to have a lot of freedom in choosing in buying things. He bought a lot of art. Um, there's there's I think probably today there would be tons more oversight but he's able to just buy things and say this is what I want to put in here I bought it now can you pay for it and there's very little pushback mm-hmm. about what he's bought there's some some um cabinets that are or maybe they used to be altars but they've been turned into cabinets um and there, there's a little bit of pushback like this is very expensive why did you get this and then he just explains like it's, it's all this mood I'm trying to create and if you don't want that you don't really know it's classy <laughs> um, so, Paulman was really, Paulman was so sure of himself, and that's another thing that you just, you, it, it's really hard to imagine anyone getting into this this collection and not just wanting to spend all their time there, because Paulman was creative, funny, um, and really certain of his style, which was this, um, this style that I know I'd seen a million times and I had no idea that it came from a person, and then it had a name. Um, but it's this eclectic modernism, mm-hmm. where it's it's so American. You just get to do what you want. You take things from all different eras and places and all different colors, and you just throw them together, right? You have you don't have to be consistent to any culture. You don't have to, like respect anybody else's rules. It's just play and have fun. Um, and so just seeing that, right? Seeing common sense of 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 it's like you're entitled to all of the cultures of the world in the yes. early 1960s in the US right in a Hilton hotel and Hilton hotels are themselves um, a kind of a global you know sort of part of like cultural colonialism of the US and so it all it all just like began to make much more sense um, and it it makes it so that I can really I feel like I can really convey to a reader, um, not just like what are the colors that you see walking into the lobby or into this um, this dining space, which I'll tell you about, but what are what are the messages, right? What does it mean for you to see that ancient Chinese altar turned into a side table? What is what is Palmen and what is Hilton telling you about the world and your place in it as an American?
0: Is it meant to imply that you, as uh, the uh, the Hilton customer, are at the pinnacle of of a of a world hierarchy?
1: I think so. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's something you buy, right? It's your. It's part of the experience that you buy as a guest. Is, um, you know, I'm not just here in New York. I'm in the Hilton world.
0: Right? Mm. Well, yeah i could see how that would be seductive as a as a, to the consumer and also appealing as a, from the business perspective as well uh, as yeah. a, an effective marketing tool the way to sell your service
1: right right and then it and that just perpetuates itself right so then the american is like well i'm you know i'm entitled to all these things all this is mine
0: mhm well, where does food come into the picture? Of course, it's it's central to the hospitality and to the service industry more generally.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and, and so, how does that enter your study?
1: Yeah. So, this, there's probably somebody else needs to write a whole book about hotel restaurants um, because they're essential, right? You have to feed your guest. And yet, they're always the least desirable restaurant, right? There's something about, well, if it's in a hotel, it's not there for the same reason as a restaurant that's not in a hotel that it's there because of function um, and not because of some kind of impulse, some creative impulse. Um, but what Paulman does in in the Rockefeller Center, Hilton, is creates a whole street of restaurants. So it's called the Rue des Gourmets. Um, and it is an, an a hallway, basically, with restaurants off of it. But it's supposed to, it's again, it's supposed to give the guests this idea that they're not just in New York, they're they're suddenly almost like it's almost like the hotel is this portal to all kinds of other parts of the world. Well, okay, I shouldn't say all kinds of other parts. Europe, mm-hmm. <laughs> mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so the the Rue des was really interesting to me. I had no idea that it was gonna, you know, that I would find out so much about it. Um the the concepts Of what the restaurants should be about change through the project so there's something very uh, interesting about how he could just switch from oh it's going to be an Alsatian restaurant to it's going to be um, a restaurant from New Orleans it doesn't matter in some way what the food is it's just that there has to be a range of cuisines represented and stories in a sense Mm -hmm. Um, but it could be you know, it could be six of any dozen places or stories. Um, and that really interested me that there's there's not a commitment to a particular food ways. There's just a commitment to a variety, to you, you know, you get to choose, are you Roman tonight? Or are you um, are you feeling like a French bistro? And it just is up to you, right? It's there's nothing, there's no obligation to be authentic to anything. And Ooh, so this, this, yeah. these restaurants are um, designed. Paulman keeps changing the designs and finding new materials. Um, and they're, all of the conversation is about the design. It's all about the look and there's not a word about food in the whole correspondence. Nothing about, you know, there's sketches of the menu so that we can see the design of the menu. Oh, is this pretty? Is this not pretty? But not, not discussion of what, what we're going to eat that's completely left up to the Elton chefs.
0: Well, that seems like a pretty, um, a loud silence yes. there. What does that say to you?
1: Oh, yeah, um, it's, it, this is intriguing. It, it I think it has to do with this, um, this kind of international cuisine that's um, really dominant at the, at that time in the early 1960s in, Um, in American culture and then it's like it's exported through the Hilton Hotels Um, and it's uh, it has it definitely has its own rules it's it's somewhat multicultural in that it grabs from different cultures a dish here and a dish there Um, but it's got it's got some consistencies that I'm really still kind of working on on, and that'll be that's something that I'll definitely know what we want to be presenting on later um but it the thing that i discovered while looking at all of the designs i was thinking about when you walk down the rue des gourmet what does it smell like, like do you smell italy then you smell france then you smell new orleans and it dawned on me that as i was looking at the menus that there were a lot of dishes that overlapped so there's a dish. There's it would be dishes that were on all four menus, and I was like, "What's going on here? Right? How's this happening?" And then looking at the drawings again, and realizing that the restaurant spaces are just the dining spaces, and there's no kitchen. And then on a blueprint, finding that there's a common kitchen. So when you walk down the rue des gourmets, you're actually not smelling any cooking, probably. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Just because just the smells that come from individual servings are not gonna be enough to create that ambiance and mm-hmm. oh so interesting, right? How are you supposed to think that you're in Rome if you don't smell Rome? Mm-hmm. You know, you just smell this sort of maybe this kind of low level institutional cooking <laughs> smell. <laughs> it just it's so hard to, you know, it's so hard to figure out what the experience was like for people. Um Without you know, without those kinds of details, right? What is mm-hmm. the scent? What brings you into the Roman place instead of the place that's supposed to look like a bordello in New Orleans? And mm-hmm. why a bordello? I mean, that—that's a whole other conversation.
0: Was, was this the uh, the hotel kitchen then that is simply serving to different uh, sitting areas or uh, dining yes. areas? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kitchen sort of dedicated for these restaurants. Mm. Okay. Um, and there will be, there's different, um, there's usually a coffee shop in every, most American hotels have a coffee shop too, which means like a, sort of more like a diner, you know, grilled cheese sandwich, coffee, milkshake, hamburger. Hmm. But that's a different well, kitchen.
0: Well, it sounds like the um, the design uh, philosophy is being reflected in the food. And so far as you said, it's there's this eclectic modernism is a pastiche of uh, different things grabbed from elsewhere that don't need to make sense uh, side by side, but that's sort of the point, right?
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's, so that's all of really... that
1: is, it's very different from what we expect now, right? Where people mm. are sort of hunting for authenticity. That wasn't the concern.
0: Mm-hmm. And so did uh, the Hilton chain continue to grow? Well, what is the trajectory here from the, the mid 20th century?
1: Yeah. Um, so this is really, this is 1963. So this is just about the end of the time that I'm thinking about. He really retired mm-hmm. in That's 1966. It. And um, the International Division gets sold off um, to TWA. So there's still a Hilton um, involvement, but there's also this, there's also TWA. Right, and the TWA records have been. I I can't find them, <laughs> essentially. Mm. Um, and somebody else who's working on a Hilton project also can't. <laughs> so, it's some way you have to end this. Um, you know, if you're looking at Hilton and design and hospitality, um, until those those you know those papers can be found, um, this is where that con that conversation between Hilton and designers is really kind of beginning to end. Mm. Um, so. He, I mean, I think he, when he dies, the company's, it's in a transition. It's, he's given it to his sons. He's not that confident of, um in fact, when he died, he didn't leave very much to them and they had to, didn't have to, but they did contest the will and get sort of get what they thought was their fair share. So he's, he's, at the end, he's, I think unsure of what the future of his company is going to be. He tied it up so much with himself. Um, and this kind of, it's so, it's hard to describe what he's like as a leader, but he's very, um, easygoing. So like the, those, the fact that Paulman had so much freedom mm-hmm. to create his designs the way he wanted to, to create a feel and space for the Hilton, um, that's it. Seems very much in keeping with earlier correspondence I've read between Hilton and um, other people in his company. That's sort of like, well, you know what to do, you know, um, you'll figure it out, and just report back to me and let me know, and I'll just I'll figure out the money. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of refreshing. <laughs> this is very low low level of involvement, and yet an enormous amount of money is being made. And he's got his name all over the world. But you'd think someone who wanted their name all over the world would be like domineering. And it just doesn't come across in the, in how he deals with people. It's funny. It's a funny balance.
0: I'd like to come back to the title of your project. Uh, How is it that uh, these, this hotel chain became better than home? And what (laughs) do you mean by that? I guess more to the point.
1: Yeah. Um, So... There's this long history of hotels where, for most of most of the time that they've existed, they've been kind of necessary evils, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think is hard for a contemporary person to to imagine. But you know, if you think about um, *Moby Dick*, right? You get a room; somebody else is in the bed. Uh, you deal with it, right? Um, there are fleas. Maybe you get a bowl of chowder, right? Um, and then it it's or er, kind of early twentieth century that it becomes an industry, that hospitality becomes something that you can sell um, and that you can sell people an experience that's something that's, that they want. Mm-hmm. So it was a place you had to go. So home was always better than a hotel. And then it becomes a place that, um, because, because people recognize the desire for, um, for experience, um, how do you say this, for, um, for being taken care of, right, hmm. that whole, the service industry, right, that the whole philosophy of um, I can pay somebody else to um, make me feel comfortable, to make me feel special, and I don't have to give them anything in return except for money, right, it's not, it's no accident that hotels are also um, places where sex workers are very successful, right, because it's a place where you are, you're going to be rendered services that typically you would get in the home, and there would be some kind of emotional exchange which no one no longer have to do it so uh, hotels become um as hotel owners as ho- has as people uh, men who own hotels always, almost always men, um begin to kind of collect hotels and decide um uh, on kind of like what we now think of as like a brand right what does it what does it mean to stay in a you know an American hotel company hotel what does it mean to stay stay in a Hilton, how do they distinguish themselves from other chains and other hotels? They're competing with each other to offer folks stuff that they don't have at home, hmm. that they don't have in other hotels. Um, and they, the hotel owners even begin to talk about themselves as setting design standards. So I don't know that it's really true, but they say to each other, right? When we buy furniture, like we, we you know, when people stay in our hotel, they see our furniture. And then when they go home, they want to buy furniture like that. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that, but it's something they believed in. So they believe that they are um, creating mm-hmm. experiences that are good enough to pay for, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because really all you need is a place to sleep. But uh-huh. they, they have now, like we now, I think, think of hotels as, um, it's a place of freedom, right? I can be somebody else there um I can you know I can be a bit more kind of lordly (laughs) and I can get away with at home um and so the that that it really my that subtitle um which I have to give my friend Kathy Feely credit for because she she framed it for me um was uh that idea that um, sort of coming out of the song history of the necessary people into the desirable, um, you know, the treat.
0: And uh, I guess uh, to bring it back to the eclecticism of design, it, that fits perfectly into that uh, that pattern because, um, well, people don't have, uh, as you say, uh, Chinese shrines turned into sideboards in their homes, uh, yeah. but might feel um, themselves elevated. Uh, but to pay for the experience to be exposed to these um, sort of finer things, as it were.
1: You're right. Yeah, that's what he's, um, that's what, you know, what Paulman can offer them is, uh, is this, this mix that they probably can't afford to do themselves, that they don't have the expertise, the buyers, right? They don't have the connections to make for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, the to make those, there's very modern American spaces, Um, They may not have the courage to do that. Mm -hmm. And he's definitely, oh, he had the courage. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Megan, thank you so much for sharing this uh, with me. And I can't wait to read the book. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) I have a reader. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think there'll be several. I think we'll be lining up. (laughs) Um, And uh, to the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society, and the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit Hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger.